G'day, everyone. Well. G'day, everyone. It's nice to be here. Um, please keep your Bibles open to 1 John. We're going to be spending some time in 1 John uh, looking at that, the big question that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Uh, how do you know you're a Christian? So let me pray. Let's get into it together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful, wonderful confidence that we can have that we are right with you. And we pray tonight, please uh, strengthen that confidence in us. But we also ask, Lord, that you would warn those who need warning and you'd comfort those who need comforting. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I reckon that there is nothing more wonderful in this life than to be absolutely, absolutely, absolutely confident that I am right with God. There's nothing more wonderful than to know I am loved by God. Nothing more wonderful than to know I will be with the Lord for all eternity. You know, to know where I stand now, to know where I'll stand forevermore, that I'm right with God now, that I'll be right with God at the judgment day, that I'll be right with God forever and ever. Confident that I'm a Christian. But how do you know you're a Christian? How can I be confident that I'm a Christian? Well, the letter of 1 John that we've just, Hannah just read a bit for us from is written for just such a purpose. Uh, if I could give the book of 1 John a title, I think the title that I'd give it is Be Confident. Be confident, because it's a letter to, amongst other things, build deep confidence in God's people. Look with me at a key reason that John gives for writing this letter. Look in chapter 5, verse 13. Open it there. If you haven't opened it, come back to chapter 5, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing this letter to you guys so that you may know, be sure, be confident that you have eternal life. 1 John is a letter written by the Apostle John to a group of Christians whose faith has been shaken. So they're part of a church or a group of churches where a heresy has come through. False teachers have come in, taught false teaching. A bunch of people from the church have heard it, believed it, followed them and left the church with them. Now, if you're still in that church, how are you feeling, do you think? Frightened? Shaken? Perhaps questioning? Perhaps doubting? Am I really right with God? Can I be confident that I'm really a Christian? Am I eternally secure? And so the Apostle John writes to this church to say, be confident. Be confident that you are a Christian, you are right with God, you are safe with him forever. And the way that John firstly does that is to get them to look at themselves and see that in their life there is evidence that they do belong to Jesus. See, how can I be confident that I'm a Christian? Well, firstly, by seeing evidence in my life that I belong to Jesus. You see, what the Apostle John does in his letter to these Christians is to give them three tests to take. And if they take these tests and they pass these tests, they will show themselves to be Christians. They're the evidence of whether someone is a Christian or not. Imagine you're a teacher. Now, some of you are teachers, I know. And, uh, and what you do is you set a test for your class because you know that in your class you've got a bunch of different students. You've got diligent, hard-working students and you've got the slackers. And so you set a test in order for the diligent students to just cruise through and do it easy. They don't need to do any extra work. They don't need to put in any extra study because they're diligent students. They work hard all the time. They just sit the test, they'll pass the test and uh, go well. In fact, the test is designed so that when they do it and they pass it, it actually gives them an increased confidence, a real boost, a big thumbs up. You're all good. But the slackers, when they sit the test, it's going to sort them out. They're not going to pass. It's actually going to show them for what they are, which is people who are pretending to be students but aren't actually 
studying at all and it'll give them the big thumbs down. Now, that's similar in 1 John. Three tests are done to do two things simultaneously. Firstly, to show that those who have left the church believing the heresy, when they try to take those tests, they fail the tests and show themselves never to, be true, never to have been true believers at all. And two, secondly, the tests are designed to show that those who have remained in the church will pass the tests and so they can have confidence that they are God's children. Big thumbs up. And so John doesn't give the test to those remaining in the church wondering, wondering about whether they might fail. No, he gives them the test confident that they will pass the test. In fact, he gives them the test so when they do pass the test, they themselves might have renewed and reinvigorated and reinforced confidence in their salvation. They'll have the big thumbs up. You are truly a Christian, so be confident. The three tests that John gives are three evidences someone is a Christian and they're a bit like three legs of a stool. You need all three. If the stool is a three-legged stool, two legs won't cut it. You sit on it and it falls over. And so if we see these three things in our life, it gives us confidence. I'm someone who is right with God. I belong with him. I'll be with him for all eternity. And the three tests, the three evidence are, are belief, obedience and love. Belief in the truth, obedience to God's commands, love for God's people. So let's look briefly at each leg. Leg one, belief in the truth. See, the first test of whether someone is a Christian is whether they believe the truth about Jesus. Because to step away from the apostolic teaching about Jesus that we have in our New Testament is to step away from Jesus himself. Look with me at a couple of the passages about this. Still in chapter 5, have a look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you know someone's truly a Christian? How do you know someone has overcome the sinful, rebellious world and will be with God forever? It's only the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Come with me, chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. If you get the truth about Jesus wrong, if you deny that Jesus, the man, is the Christ, the Son of God, then John says you're a liar. The Antichrist, against Christ, and do not have God the Father or the Son. The test of whether someone is a true Christian is what they believe about Jesus. One more. Come with me, chapter 4, verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus acknowledges is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. The test of whether someone is truly has the spirit of God is what they believe about Jesus. Whether they believe that Jesus has come in the flesh, God the Son come as a human being in order to die and save us. And any spirit that doesn't acknowledge this is not from God. In fact, it is the spirit of the Antichrist, says John. Very clear division. You're either with God or against God. You either have the spirit and speak by the spirit of God or speak by the spirit of the Antichrist. You're either Christian or you're not. How would you know? By whether you believe the apostolic truth about Jesus. And in all this, John is writing into a particular situation in a particular group of Christians about a particular heresy. 
And we don't have all the details, but you can reconstruct a bit of it from the letter. And it seems that the heresy in this church is that Christ only appeared to be a human, but didn't actually become one. And so it's a false teaching that denies the incarnation, that denies that God, the Son, became a human being while remaining fully God, and so denies our need for his atoning death in our place. And a number in the church had believed it and so left. And so John writes this to the true believers remaining in the church to say, this is the test of whether someone is truly a Christian or not. And you know all those people who have left the church? They failed the test because they've let go of the fact that Jesus is God. He is the Christ. And you know you? Be confident because you continue to believe these truths. The mark of a true Christian is leg one. They believe the truth about Jesus. And so if you can look at your life and see that that leg, along with the other two legs, are in place in your life, you can sit on the stool, which is the I'm right with God stool. You can sit on it with confidence, knowing that you're a Christian. Leg two, obedience. The second clear test of whether someone is a Christian or not is whether they obey God. Now, not perfectly, but a clear orientation towards obedience to God as their heavenly Father. And if someone lives consistently in disobedience towards God, doing whatever they want with their lives without regard to God, if Christ is not their Lord who they obey, then they show themselves not to be true Christians at all. Again, the group who has left the church, when they take this test, fail and show they are not those who obey Christ. Whereas those who John is writing to in the church and any Christians who obey God pass the test and should be confident that they are God's people. Again, right through the letter, let's look at a couple. Come with me to chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. The mark of the person who knows Jesus is, they do what he commands. They obey his word. They live like Jesus did. And if someone says they know Jesus but doesn't do what what he commands, John says, no, actually, they're a liar and the truth is not in them. Flip with me to chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. We know that the reason that Jesus came was to cleanse us of our sin. In fact, you look at Jesus and in him is no sin. And so if someone then continues in a life of sin, unconcernedly doing what's sinful, they show they're not with Jesus. Jesus doesn't live with them. They don't know him. Jump down to verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor does anyone who does not love their brother or sister. No one born of God continues to sin. And the person who does continue in sin... Shows himself, John says, to be a child of not God, but the devil. Now, this is not about perfect obedience. This is not about being sinless and perfect in all things. Earlier in the letter, John says, when you do sin, we have an advocate 
to the Father in our defence. Come to him and confess your sins and you will be forgiven. We do sin. This is about the core shape of your life. Is my life an obedience to God-shaped life? Second mark of a true Christian, second leg, obedience. And so if that leg and the other two legs are in place in my life, then I can sit on the I am right with God stool with confidence. I am confident I'm a Christian. Leg three, love for one another. The third clear test of whether someone is a Christian is whether they love other Christians. Not perfect love, not always getting it right, but genuine practical love for God's people. Because if God loved me so much that he laid down his life for me, and I've truly appreciated that, how can I go on living without love for other people, particularly my brothers and sisters? Christians are to exhibit a real, genuine, practical love for others, particularly the believers. And so John gives this as a test. You can tell a true Christian by whether they love other Christians. Again, it's right through the letter, but a couple of key passages. Chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear friends, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John says, you know that you've passed from death to life if you love one another. And if you don't love your brothers and sisters, it shows that you actually remain in death. And the love that we're to have for each other is verse 16, like the love of the Lord who laid down his life for us. A love that does practical things for each other, so that verse 18, it's not merely with words and speech, but in action and in truth. One last passage. Come to chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Again, God, John says that love for each other as Christians is just not an optional extra. If we don't love each other, it shows that we haven't been impacted by Jesus' love for us and shows that in the end we don't actually know God at all. Now again, this isn't about being perfect in the way that we love God's people. This is about the core shape of your life. Is my life a love for God's people-shaped life? The mark of a true Christian is leg three, love. And so if that leg, along with the obedience and the belief legs, are sitting in place, you can sit confidently on the top of the I'm right with God's stool. I can be confident that I'm a Christian. Three legs of the stool, belief, obedience, love. Not perfect, 
but present and growing. Three legs designed to give God's people confidence that they are God's people. Three legs that show evidence of the Holy Spirit's work within them. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you wake up in the morning, you go out and you go to nuke something in the microwave and uh, nothing happens. There's no little clock, there's no little, it's not working. Ah, microwave's busted. Got to buy a new microwave. And then someone else says, actually, the toaster's not working either. And you think, try the lights. The lights aren't working. And so you come to the conclusion, blackout. There's no power coming to the house. The microwave, the toaster, the lights all only work because there's power running to them. And so if they're not working, you wonder whether they're actually receiving any power at all. Same with the Christian life. The person connected to God will, by the Spirit of God, believe the truth, grow in love, grow in obedience. And if over time there is no evidence of these things, you have to wonder whether that person is connected to the power at all whether that person is connected to God at all, whether the Spirit is at work in that person or whether they're actually a true believer at all. So, do you like my stool diagram? Helpful, isn't it? Actually, though, if you leave it like that, it's wrong. It's actually wrong. If we just left it there, then our confidence as Christians ultimately rests on us. And that's a real problem. Because if being confident in my salvation rests upon me, I'm always left worrying and wondering and concerned and thankfully our confidence doesn't rest ultimately upon us. So let's rebuild the stool as I think it actually should look. And to do that we need to ask the question again, which is, how can I be confident I'm a Christian? How can I be confident that I'm right with God, forever loved by him as his child? And the answer is... By knowing that Jesus' death has atoned for my sin. See, so far we've seen in 1 John that there are these three grounds of Christian confidence. That if we exhibit belief, obedience and love, that we can have confidence that we're Christians. But these grounds for confidence, while absolutely necessary, are additional and inferior grounds for confidence. Are supporting evidences that we're right with God. There is actually a stronger, deeper, more secure reason for confidence and that reason is the foundational basis of Christian confidence and that is the death of Jesus has atoned for all my sin because his atoning death is what actually solves my problem and makes me right with God. See, there's actually only one leg to the stool and this leg is the central leg, the weight-bearing leg. The pole right in the centre that's bolted to the seat and that's cemented into the floor. I don't know if you've ever sat on a bar stool like that somewhere where it's actually cemented into the ground, immovable, unshakable. What is it that ultimately gives me confidence that I'm a Christian? What is it that ultimately means that I can sit on the I am right with God's stool and know that it won't move, it won't give way, it won't wobble even a millimetre? It's the central weight-bearing pole in the centre, cemented into the ground, secure and unshakable, which is the death of Jesus has atoned for all my sin. See, I think the stool should actually look something like this. The leg that our confidence ultimately rests upon is Jesus' death for us. Because it's Jesus' death alone that makes us right with God. Not my orthodox belief. Not my sacrificial love. Not my faithful obedience. No, Christ's death alone in my place. This is the fundamental thing that gives us confidence that we are right with God. Our belief, our obedience, our love are additional and inferior evidences that I'm right with God. 
supporting evidence that I'm right with God because they show that Jesus' death on the cross for me has worked, has impacted my life in such a way that it's starting to show. And so they're not really legs at all. I've made them support struts. They bear no weight in saving us. They just give us additional confidence that we're God's people for whom Jesus died and you can see that it's effective in our life because his death is changing us. Where do I look for confidence that I'm a Christian? Where do I look for confidence that I'm right with God? Well, I can look at my life and if I see the evidence of belief, obedience and love, it gives me confidence. But ultimately, I look not at myself, not at my life, not even at my faith. I look away from myself to him and his atoning death for me once and for all. That is the fundamental reason for my confidence. And that is what faith is. So the very nature of faith is not to look at me, but to look away from me. It's not even to look at faith like faith is some sort of thing. The very nature of faith is to look to him, to look to the one who has done everything to save me, to rest my weight fully upon the stool because I know that it is his death that holds me up. And this should give us incredible confidence in our salvation. Look with me again at chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In his love, God sent his own dear son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. A very important little phrase, atoning sacrifice. You get it in chapter 2 as well. Which means Jesus died in our place as a sacrifice that satisfied the anger of God towards us for the wrong that we have done. Which says to us that God is a God of wrath, a God of righteous anger. He is so perfectly just, he is so perfectly good that he does not let the guilty get away unpunished, but rather burns with righteous anger towards them that they experience what they deserve. He does not let the guilty get away. And the problem is, we're the guilty. I'm the guilty. You're the guilty. Because we've all stood in rebellion against him and so we all stand under his fierce anger and his fierce anger must be satisfied because he is a good and righteous and holy God. It must be poured upon the guilty. But God is also a God of love. He is love, perfect love. And so he desires to save sinners from his just anger. And so God in his incredible love does the only thing that is possible to save us from his righteous anger. He steps under it himself. God the Son comes and God's anger is poured full strength upon him as a sacrifice that satisfies, appeases, absorbs the anger of God that we deserve. So if my faith is in Jesus, there is no more anger left for me. It has been poured out full strength upon him. God deals with our problem, making us right with himself because God provides the sacrifice of himself to save us. Now I had a cracker illustration here. And then Jono heard it this morning, and he stole it three weeks ago. So I'm just going to do it again. You know, in the Marvel movies, Guardians of the Galaxy, is this ringing a bell? You know the scene towards the end of the first Guardians of the Galaxy, this group of ragtag misfits have been drawn together, human, alien, mutant raccoon, humanoid tree, and have started to become family. And right at the end, they've been fighting against the bad guys, I don't know, to save the universe or something, fighting against the bad guys, and it's going bad. 
They're getting hammered. They're all injured. They're all lying on the ground, unable to do anything. And the spaceship that they're on is crippled. It's crashing towards the surface of the planet and is going to be destroyed in a fiery wreck. And they just lie there, resigned to their fate, because they know that there is nothing they can do to save themselves. They're going to burn up. But one of them, Groot, the tree man humanoid thing that looks like a man you know he's got the arms and the legs and the head but he can grow he can send out vines and shoots and he starts to grow he starts to say what how did you find that suddenly i didn't do that (laughs) he sends out his vines he shoots and and he cocoons them around them why he uses his own body to create this sphere, this cocoon, tethers them into the sphere, tethers the sphere into the spaceship, knowing all along when the spaceship impacts the earth and explodes in a fiery ball, he will be destroyed. But as he is destroyed, he absorbs the fury of that impact so that they are saved and live. Now, that's a, that's a, a weird small illustration that, that illustrates the incredible love of God for us. Jesus is like that sphere, like a cocoon that he wraps himself around us and God, anger poured full strength upon him, he absorbs it in himself so that in his destruction we are saved and live. How incredible is it that God would love us like that? The God who rules over all things would become a man, would stand under his own judgment for our sin, absorbing the impact by sacrificing himself so that we might live forevermore. And because of this, because our sin has been atoned for and there is no more anger left for us, we've been washed clean. Come with me to one final passage. Chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you turn to Jesus and you ask him for forgiveness, trusting in his death to save you, he is the faithful, just God, and he will forgive you your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness, perfectly clean, totally, utterly, once and for all. In 1 John, the fundamental reason for Christian confidence is what Christ has done for us. And so the key to Christian confidence is look away from yourself to Jesus. Look not firstly at your life, but look firstly at his death that atones for your sin. And only then look at the supporting evidence in your life of whether the Holy Spirit is changing you. When you sit upon the I'm right with God's stool, the fundamental reason you can sit there is the confidence that the central weight-bearing pole gives you. Jesus has atoned for all my sin and washed me clean, so I'm right with God. The other struts support and give increased confidence that I can sit safe upon the stool because I know that I'm someone who is right with God because Jesus' death is changing me. I'm becoming more like him. Now, the challenge of all this is getting the right people to hear the right thing because I imagine amongst us there's at least two groups of people. There's those with the calloused or callousing conscience and there's those with a tender conscience. The person with the calloused or callousing conscience is the one who has lost sensitivity to the state of their soul. Now, I could say to you, I'm not going to do this, but I could say to you, turn to the person next to you, reach out your hand, take hold of their hand in yours and and, and caress it. Just just gently rub your hand over theirs, feel their palm. Well, some people are doing it. Feel their palm. (laughs) Some of you would say, your hands are so soft. What moisturiser do you use? 
Others would say, your hands are so rough and, and, and gnarly, like gravel. Like, feel those calluses. But if you're the person who has the calloused hand, as, as they touch your hand, you don't feel that much. You're not that sensitive because calluses are wonderful things. They, they protect you from um, pain, they protect you from injury, but, but that area of skin gets quite uh, desensitised. Now, it's possible to have your conscience calloused through consistent resistance to the word of God. The person who has the callous conscience is the person who hears the warnings of the Bible and thinks nothing of them. Is the person who hears the three tests in one John is just not sensitive to whether they might be someone who might be failing one of them. The person with the callous conscience may be very, very quick to run to that central weight-bearing leg. Jesus has died for me. It's all good. I'm all good with God because Jesus died for me and so I'm all clean. And have very little concern about the other three struts, about whether there's any evidence in their life of whether they follow Jesus. Have stopped paying attention to whether there's any fruit in their life. And so they may feel very confident that they're Christians, that they're all good with God, but the outside observer looks at their life and says, Dude, I don't think you should be so confident. There's nothing, no evidence in your life that would convict you of being a Christian. I don't know whether you're a true believer at all. And so what does the person with a callous conscience need? Warning. They need to be told to pay careful attention to the three outer struts, to the three tests of whether they are actually believers at all, so that they can repent. Now, I'm not going to do this, but I could say, turn again to the person next to you. And this time, just reach out your hand gently and stroke their eyeball. (laughs) Just, Just gently rub your finger across their eyeball. The person with the tender conscience is more like the surface of the eye. So sensitive to any speck that gets in it. They're super sensitive to their flaws, to their failings, to the state of their soul. And so the person with the tender conscience often feels very worried about their salvation. Very anxious. Not because they're more sinful than the person with the callous conscience. In fact, they're more godly than the person with the callous conscience. The person with the tender conscience can tend to look only at the three struts and almost be blind to the central weight-bearing leg. And so be constantly asking, do I really believe? Do I really buy? Do I really love? Am I really a Christian? Could God really forgive me? And they bear a very heavy burden for all the ways in which they feel they've failed. And they're so fixated on those three struts, they can lose sight of the foundational leg bolted to the ground, the immovable truth that Christ's death has atoned for our sin. And while they may feel very anxious about whether they're a Christian or not, whether they're okay with God, the outside observer looks at their life and said, I don't know why you're worried. You of all people should not be worried. I can see in your life all sorts of fruit that you're a follower of Jesus. And the very fact that you are so concerned about your relationship with the Lord shows that the Spirit is at work in you. But they find it very hard to see. And so what does the person with a tender conscience need? They need comforting. They need to be told to pay a special attention to the central weight-bearing leg, to the objective reality that Christ's death has atoned for your sin. There is no anger left for you. You are clean before God now and forever. He loves you. And also be helped to see that there is wonderful fruit growing in their life, not least the fact that they are so concerned about their relationship with the Lord. So can I very briefly speak to each group in turn? Firstly, to those with the calloused or callousing conscience. And the problem is, if this is you, you probably won't think it's you. See, if you're the person who thinks, I'm the person with the callous conscience, I'm the person who needs to be warned, it's not you. (laughs) 
you're probably the person with the tender conscience. Rather, it's the person who thinks, I don't know who he's talking to, but it couldn't possibly be me. It's you. You're the person who probably needs the warnings. So if you have any sense that you don't need any warnings, please be, pay careful attention right now. If you're confident you're a Christian, but you're living in unrepentant sin, there are things that you know God does not want you to do, but you just actually, in your heart of hearts, don't care and won't do and aren't turning to him asking for forgiveness, asking for him to change you, then can I say, be warned. If you're confident you're a Christian but have all sorts of problems and arguments with people, won't forgive people for the little things they've done against you, aren't seeking to care, to give, to serve, to think of others, to, but are purely self-focused, be warned. If you're confident you're a Christian but there are things about the gospel which in your heart of hearts you just really actually don't truly believe, you don't really believe that you are a bad person in need of God's forgiveness. You don't really believe that you can do nothing to save yourself. You don't really believe that God is a just judge and will condemn people eternally to hell. You don't really believe that Jesus' death is a sacrifice under the judgment of God in your place. If that is you, be warned. If you're confident that you're a Christian but all the evidence in your life points to the contrary, if you're failing the three tests of John, Maybe you shouldn't be so confident and say, can I say to you tonight, please come to Jesus, ask him for forgiveness, turn from your sin and you will be washed clean and he will change you. But whatever you do, don't go away confidently thinking you're okay with God and will be okay with God in the judgment if there is no evidence in your life that demonstrates you're a believer. Now, can I speak to those who have a tender conscience? And if you have a tender conscience, you probably won't think you're the person with the tender conscience. (laughs) You'll just be worried about whether you truly believe properly, whether you obey fully enough, whether you love sacrificially enough. If if you're worried about these things, this is for you. Please listen. Jesus' death has atoned for all your sin. No more anger left for you. Every sin, past, present and future has been cleansed, has been dealt with once and for all. How do you know if you're a Christian? You can have confidence that you are a Christian right with God by not looking at yourself but looking at him, at his death that has satisfied the just anger of God and cleansed you of all sin forevermore. In my years of Christian ministry, I've I've spoken to quite a number of people who are very worried about their salvation, who are worried about whether they truly believe and adequately obey and really love, who are worried about whether they, they really trust whether they really have faith, whether they have really have the right sort of faith, about whether really God could really forgive them, about whether they've been too bad this time or done too much this time or too much. And usually I say something to them like, do you know the person who is not a believer doesn't give a stuff about all this? The person who has an unregenerate heart doesn't care that they're living in disobedience to God doesn't care that they're not loving other believers, doesn't, isn't concerned about whether they hold the truth. No, no, the very fact that you're worried about these things is evidence that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is working within you. So can I encourage you? Look to Jesus' death and not at yourself. Look not even at your faith. Faith is to look away from yourself to him and all that he has done for you and let him be your unshakable confidence. Now, do you, do you remember the parable that Jesus told the Pharisee and the tax collector? A wonderful parable. The Pharisee um, 
you know, is, is praying aloud, confident that he's okay with God because he thinks he's a good guy. The, the, the tax collector, though, stands right at the back, won't have him look up, bangs himself on the chest and, and, and cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, if you find in your heart you're crying out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, you're in good company. You're in the best company. You're in the company of Christians across the ages who have truly trusted in the Lord Jesus. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because do you remember God's verdict on this man? Jesus says, this one, that one, went home right with God now and forever. And so let me finish with a little fictional story that I nicked from another preacher and um, I think made it a little bit better. (laughs) It's about one of the criminals who died on the cross next to Jesus. Do you remember the criminal who uh, cries out to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus' response to that criminal was, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now here's the fictional bit. Straight after the man dies, he arrives at the pearly gates, you know, make-believe stuff. And the angel standing at the gate with his big scroll, gets his scroll out, looks at him shocked and says, what are you doing here? And the guy says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. And the angel says, uh, let me get my supervisor. So he walks away and the supervising angel comes over and says, okay, okay, so I have a number of questions for you. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? I've never heard of it. Well, have you been baptised? Well, sometimes when I get really smelly, I take a bath. Which church did you attend? Church? Did you love other Christians? I never met another Christian. Did you live your life obeying Jesus? Well, I didn't get much of a chance. I spoke to Jesus and then I died and now I'm here. Then on what basis are you here? The man in the middle cross said I could come. The man in the middle cross said I could come. The one who looks to Jesus on the cross is the one who stands free of God's anger, pure and clean and right with God forever. Jesus did it all and so he's our confidence. In a moment we're going to sing a a wonderful song about the great confidence we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, This is one of the verses. Now, the the band's going to start coming up. But as they come up, why don't you have a look at this, have a think about this. I'll pray once the band's up, and then we'll sing it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and that his death atones for all our sin. Please fill us with all joy and peace and confidence because of this. And please work in us the fruit of salvation, that we would hold fast to the truth, that we would grow in obedience to Jesus and that our love for our Christian brothers and sisters would abound. And we ask that even this fruit in our lives would also give us uh, confidence that we are his. And we ask this in his name. Amen.